Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Peter, and so you please turn there with me, 1 Peter uh, chapter 3. <clears throat> We're going to be reading uh, together verses 13 uh, through uh, 22 to the end of the chapter. 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, uh, beginning at verse 13, uh, down to verse 22. We've been walking together with the Apostle Peter, hearing his letter uh, to the church, uh, what it means to, uh, to be the church uh, in an antagonistic world, in a, a world where the uh, culture is often opposed to the church, which leads often to persecution and suffering uh, for those who are faithful uh, to Jesus Christ. And so we've been encouraged by Peter thus far, and uh, so as we continue on uh, today, uh, we come again to the heart uh, of, of the gospel. And so 1 Peter 3 Uh, verse 13 to the end. This is the word of the Lord. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, Those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him." This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again uh, for your grace and mercy to us. We've just prayed together in in song that uh, you would speak to us uh, through your uh, uh, never-changing word. And so, Lord, we thank you that uh, your word uh, has endured and will endure through all the ages until everything uh, is accomplished. And so we thank you that we have that privilege again today uh, to focus on that word that you might, by your Holy Spirit, take it and apply it to our hearts, engrave it on our hearts, that we might know you better and that we might love you more. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Martin Luther, 16th century reformer, uh, said of 1 Peter 3, uh, verses 18 through 22, uh, he said, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage, perhaps, than any other in the New Testament so that I do not for a certainty know just what Peter means. Uh, That was Martin Luther on uh, the latter part of 1 Peter 3. He was, of course, alluding to uh, verse 19 and following, where Peter uh, mentions the spirits in prison and speaks of the days of Noah. Uh, What is that all about? Well, uh, this morning we'll be focusing on verse 18. So if you want to hear a sermon on verses 19 through 22, you're going to have to invite me back sometime, and then we will carry on uh, in our study of 1 Peter, where we left off. But verse 18, 
uh, has uh, plenty enough to capture our mind's attention and the affections of our heart. Now, whenever a verse of Scripture starts with the word for, as verse 18 does, uh, you know that uh, what you're reading serves as a continuation of the thought of what has come before. In this case, verse 17, which itself follows on uh, the thoughts of verses 13 to 16, which we considered last time. But verse 17 goes like this, for it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And so we've already seen in 1 Peter that the the faithful church will suffer persecution. Others will seek to do the church harm. Uh, If the church is the church and Christians are living for Christ, there will be, says Peter throughout this letter, there will be opposition in this world, whether you're in China or whether in the United States of America. It doesn't matter where you are. If you're being faithful to Christ, you will suffer uh, for righteousness' sake. Um, This is why many churches in America today have someone uh, designated to uh, carry a uh, concealed weapon and to sit in the back of the church building on the lookout uh, for any unusual behavior. Why? Well, because... Uh, there have been too many instances in our country of people, young and old, walking into church buildings on the Lord's Day and indiscriminately shooting people, murdering Christians for no other reason than for the sheer wickedness of it all. That's the country in which we live. So yes, evil and suffering is a reality. But, says Peter, it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil, if that should be God's will. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Do you mean to tell me that for the church to suffer, for a Christian to suffer, could ever be God's will? You mean to tell me that the sufferings of the church, the persecution of the church, that Peter's been talking about, that this is, wait a minute, this is not some kind of random chance event, it's not some kind of activity purely in the hands of the evil one outside the control of God. It's not some kind of power in opposition to God over which God has no sovereign sway, but is in fact uh, His will. First point is this. Sometimes the Lord wills suffering for His people to serve His glorious purposes. Sometimes the Lord wills suffering for His people to serve His glorious purposes. Now, how can we say that? And how can we possibly believe that? Well, the Apostle Peter tells us in verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. So if you're having trouble, as we all have trouble at times, with the fact that the Lord is sovereign, do you have trouble with, for instance, the opening chapters of Job, which we went through in our evening services for, what was it, Derek, over a year? Over a year, I was sitting looking at you uh, as we went through Job. It was a long time. And uh, we learned things in Job, uh, like uh, that passage where uh, the Bible depicts interaction between Satan and God. And God calls attention to Job and his faithfulness. And Satan says, you know, God, Job's just in it for the health and wealth. And as soon as you take away those things, it'll be evident to everybody uh, that he doesn't really love you at all. There's no true believers In this world, they're only after your goods. And as soon as you take away the goods, they'll reject you. And so God says, okay, let's see. You can take away those blessings of wealth and children. And you can take away his health 
Do you have trouble with those passages? Sometimes the Lord wills suffering for his people to serve his glorious purposes. We may not understand it, but we believe and we trust and we put faith in God's word, which cannot fail. Now, Peter's point here is this. No Christian believer should stumble over the sovereignty of God, over the suffering of believers, knowing that he's fulfilling his glorious purposes because Christ also suffered. Jesus, the Bible says, the spotless Lamb of God, also suffered. He suffered once for sins. Not that he did not suffer throughout his life. The Bible's not saying he just suffered once at the end. No, no, he suffered throughout his life. For instance, Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because, that's Jesus, he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. So every time Jesus had this external uh, temptation, he didn't have any temptation within, he was pure and sinless, but whenever he experienced that temptation of the evil one, he, he suffered. Hebrews 5, 7 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications, and listen to this, with loud cries and tears. That's how Jesus prayed. To him who is able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, this is speaking of Jesus, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He suffered uh, throughout his life, but in this verse, Peter is emphasizing his suffering once for sins on the cross. Uh, as the book of uh, uh, Hebrews uh, also reminds us over and over again. And so Hebrews 7.27 goes like this. Uh, He has, that's Jesus, no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this uh, once for all when he offered up himself. Hebrews 9.12, he entered, that's Jesus, once for all into the holy places not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He entered once for all into the holy places. Hebrews 9, uh, 26 goes like this. Um, Jesus is not like those high priests of the Old Testament, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, once for all at the end uh, of the ages. Uh, Verse 28, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. In Hebrews 10.10, And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Peter himself has been uh, mentioning this theme here in this letter. He's mentioned Christ's sufferings a number of times. So back in chapter 2, uh, verse 20, remember Peter said this, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Here comes another four. For to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example In that same chapter, verse 24, remember, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. But here, notice what Peter's emphasizing. He's noticing uh, and emphasizing the absolute, uh, unique character of the death of Jesus. Once for sins. Once for all time. Once and only once. 
There's only one cross in history that has any, uh, that has any salvific effect. And it's the cross of Jesus. No other cross is necessary. He has paid it all, goes to him, all to him I owe. Sin had left a, a crimson stain all over me. But he washed it white as snow once for sins. No mass, no ongoing sacrifice in the Roman Catholic tradition. Uh, no self-imposed cross in the Presbyterian tradition either, thinking that we can somehow add anything to the once-for-all sacrifice paid by Jesus. One cross, one sacrifice, one Savior, once for sins. And this is why when the uh, Scripture sums up the, the heart of the gospel, uh, Paul, Paul will say this, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also receive, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And to a church in Galatia that was struggling, uh, that was uh, losing hold of the gospel, uh, the Apostle Paul said this, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. Once for all. Now here's the thing. Peter's saying this was the will of the Father. Just like there may be times when we are called to suffer for righteousness' sake. Don't get discouraged, says Peter, for Christ also suffered once for sins. The Father willed the suffering of His Son uh, for His glorious purposes. No accident in the cross. This was the plan and, and purpose of God. And here's the thing, the early church knew that, and it inspired them to go on in their Christian life and to trust God in difficult times. Acts 2, uh, 22, the Apostle Peter says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, listen to what the Bible says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So it's the definite plan of God, the suffering of Jesus, while you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. The Father willed the suffering of the Son for the sake of his people. But again, the church itself knew this. Uh, the church knew this because you might remember that when Peter uh, was in prison early on in Acts, the church is found praying. And they're praying for Peter in prison. And uh, this is what the church prays now as a body as they're thinking about Peter in prison. And this is part of their prayer. For truly, Lord, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. So the people of God are praying there. They're saying, Lord, everyone gathered against Jesus. The world's against the church. And now Peter's in prison. And then uh, they, they, they go out in their prayer to say this, uh, that uh, they gathered against your peoples to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So that wasn't an apostle. That's just the ordinary uh, Joe Smith in the, in the church. Lord, we know that, that Herod and Pilate, they gathered around and they, they crucified the, the Lord of glory, but they, get, they, they did all that according to your plan for our salvation. That must be the conviction of the church. It's better 
to suffer for doing good, says Peter, if that should be God's will, for Christ also suffered once for sins, and we praise God for his will. We praise God for his plan and purpose, which never fails. We praise God that all things work together for good, for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. Is it God's will that you would suffer for your faith? Is it God's will uh, that I would suffer for my faith? We do not know. What will being faithful to Jesus look like in California in the years to come? What will being faithful to Jesus look like in New Jersey? We have absolutely no idea. What challenges are around the bend? We don't know. But we all know this, that if it is God's will that we suffer for faithfulness to Christ, it is better. For we know what our Savior has suffered for us. So sometimes the Lord wills suffering for his people to serve his glorious purposes. And the suffering of Christ for his people is the suffering, the Apostle Peter says, of the righteous for the unrighteous. This passage speaks to us of what has come to be called in theology the substitutionary atonement of Christ. The sacrifice made in someone else's place, or the vicarious atonement. You see the word vicar there, someone who stands in the place of. Christ suffers in the place of sinners, in the stead of, or on behalf of. Now, atonement, of course, is a sacrifice for sin, hearkening back to the uh, day of atonement in the Old Testament. It's important to have this uh, understanding in our minds when we think about uh, Christ's suffering uh, for the play in the place of sinners, the righteous for the unrighteous. So back in Leviticus 16, just to remind ourselves, what was this day of atonement all about? Well, Leviticus 16, 29 says this, and it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, so once a year, in the seventh month, on the 10th day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day, one day of the year, shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It's a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It's a statute forever. And the priest who's anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. He shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar And he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly in their place. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. Once a year, the high priest enters the holy place with with that blood. But the idea was that it, everything needed atonement. Every, all, that, all sin needed to be covered with, uh, well, by, by the blood of sacrifice. Not the people themselves, but a, a sacrifice in their place. But it would have to be done every year. On the great day uh, of atonement, sin needs to be covered. The wages of sin is death. But the problem, of course, as you know, the Old Testament is that the blood of bulls and goats could never actually take away sin. So every year, You know, the high priest had to do that. And that's why the sacrifices had to be made continually. And that's why we read uh, this morning from Hebrews 10 as our assurance of pardon. And every priest stands daily at his service, 
offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But the Bible says when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, single sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God. That's the, the work was finished. He sat, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. That's where we're going. Every enemy of Christ will be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's atonement. Now, here's the thing. This demands, uh, this demands our attention. Peter describes the death of Jesus on the cross. He describes the suffering of Jesus on the cross as the suffering once for sins of the righteous for the unrighteous. Now, stop right there. Peter is saying that Jesus, the absolutely holy, spotless, blameless, just, true, righteous one, suffers for or in the place of, in the stead of, or as a substitute for the unrighteous. Acts 3.14 speaks of Jesus as the holy and righteous one. Now, in a kind of strange way, we see this taking place just before the crucifixion of Jesus, this idea of Jesus, the righteous for the unrighteous, in a strange way. You might know that the, the, the man named Barabbas... His name means son of the father. Interesting name. Mark 15, 6, speaking of the governor, Pontius Pilate, said this, Now at the feast, that's Pilate, used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels, we're told, in prison who had committed murder. And of course, Jesus reminds us that um, anyone who's angry in the heart has committed murder. But uh, Barabbas had committed murder in the insurrection. There was a man called, there was a man called Barabbas. Matthew 27, 17, when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, to the crowd, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew, Pilate knew, that it was out of envy they had delivered him up. Now the chief priest, the Bible says, and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who's, who's called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. That is the death of a murderer. And he said, why? <laughs> I said, Pilate. That's what he says. What evil has he done? As opposed to Barabbas. Of course, the answer is none, but that's not what the crowd said. But they shouted all the more, let him. That's Jesus be crucified. And then Pilate released for them Barabbas. Having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. The righteous for the unrighteous. Now we have no biblical reason to believe that Barabbas ever came to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But imagine just for a moment that you were Barabbas. So the week of Good Friday, you get the news in prison. There's someone else here, Barabbas, called Jesus, and the folks want you to be released and Jesus to die. And Barabbas would be all, Woo! Yes! Freedom! Yeah, I'm a murderer, but 
I get off free. I don't know this Jesus from anybody else. I don't care. And then, of course, there's, there's Good Friday, and the Bible tells us the whole land goes dark for several hours as this Jesus is crucified. And then, of course, on the third day, um, you know, he rises from the dead, the Bible says, and, and appears to over 500 people one time, all sorts of people, and the tomb's empty, and you're Barabbas. Maybe hiding out nearby because you're wondering if they still might catch you. I wonder, wonder what Barabbas is thinking. Who, wait a minute, who was that that died in my place? Barabbas deserves death. Jesus dies. Barabbas is the murderer. Jesus is condemned. Barabbas is the one who's committed the crime. Jesus is proclaimed guilty. Barabbas is the one who has blood on his hands, and yet he goes free. Jesus is the spotless Lamb of God and is led out to die. The righteous for the unrighteous. The fact is, friends, you and I are Barabbas. The Bible says there's, there's no one good. All of us are, are born sinners. Ephesians 2 says we are, we are born sinners under the wrath of God. And we may not have taken a gun or a knife and murdered somebody, but there's not a one of us here this morning that hasn't had anger in his heart. And Jesus says uh, that is, as it were, to murder someone in the heart. Romans 5.8 tells us that God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Did you know that? The Bible says Christ did not die for good people. Christ did not die for moral people. Christ did not die for righteous people. The Bible says he died for for sinners. Said one Puritan The task of the minister in preaching the gospel is simply this, to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. To comfort those who who know they're sinners and to make sure that those who think they're righteous know they're sinners. John Newton said all his writings came... uh, I came out to simply knowing this truth. I am a great sinner, but Jesus is a great Savior. Romans 5, 6 says Christ died for the ungodly, not the godly. Romans 5, 10 says that we were reconciled to God while we were yet enemies. Now the point is this. Jesus dies on the cross, Peter says, as the righteous one, not deserving to die in the place of unrighteous ones like us who deserve death. That's why Paul sums up the gospel in a wonderful way, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, He made Him, that's Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Now here's the thing. What do you see happening at the cross? What do you see when you think about the suffering and death Of Jesus, says Peter, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. So when you look at the cross and you think about the death of Jesus, what's on your mind? What's on your heart? 
The cross is not simply an expression of God's love for sinners. It is that. It's not simply Jesus setting an example of supreme self-sacrifice. It is that too. This is not a myth or fairy tale to inspire and fill you with warm, fuzzy feelings. The Bible says this is the once for all sacrifice of the righteous for the unrighteous, the supremely worthy one for the unworthy, the holy for the sinner, the blameless for the guilty, the spotless for the filthy, the pure for the impure, the obedient for the disobedient, the faithful for the faithless, the Savior for me. Is that what you see? Does that make you love Jesus more? I hope so. Is he not supremely then worthy of your worship? On the Lord's day and every day, wherever anyone's gathered to worship God, I hope you're there. Because someone who's seen Jesus on that cross, the righteous for the unrighteous, and it's me for whom he dies, knows that he is supremely worthy of my all. In all, you know, of course, that hymn, Isaac Watts, when you survey the wondrous cross, what does it demand of you? Nothing. For Isaac Watts, he says, when I look at the cross, when I give it a real consideration, righteous for the unrighteous, you know what I think, said Isaac Watts, uh, it demands my soul, demands my life, demands my all, you see. That was Isaac Watts. So sometimes the Lord... Will's suffering for his people to serve his glorious purposes. The suffering of Christ for his people is the suffering, the Bible says, of the righteous for the unrighteous, which is me. And the question, of course, is why? Why this suffering? Why the righteous for the unrighteous? And Peter tells us that he might bring us to God. That he might bring us, says Peter, to God. See, there's a, there's a grand purpose of it all. Peter's been working on it in this letter. You might remember 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Also in chapter 4, Peter will go on to say this in verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live... In the Spirit, the way God does. That He, that's Jesus, might bring us to God. Now, the assumption here, of course, is that we need to be brought. We need to be brought to God. Uh, The assumption here by Peter is we're far away. We are lost sheep. We have wandered away. Now, this is, of course, what Adam and Eve did in the garden, what they have left as a poor heritage for us, prone to wander, Lord. I feel it. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he, to rescue me from danger. Remember what that song says? He interposed his precious blood, the righteous for the unrighteous. Wandering sheep, we need to be brought to God. Isaiah 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And all we, like sheep, have gone astray. 
We've turned, everyone here and everyone on the planet, everyone, Isaiah says, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. We've gone astray, the Bible says. We've turned to our own way, wandering from the fold of God. We need to be brought home. We need to be brought to God. And friends, this is what the ministry of the Word is all about. This is the gospel. This is good news, that God has made a way where there seemed to be no way for sinners to come to a holy God, to be brought to Him, and not to be condemned but to be brought to Him so that there'd be fellowship and communion with Him. This is why we preach Christ and Him crucified. This is why you come to worship, to be brought to God. This is why you study the Bible, to be brought to God. This is why you pray, to be brought to God. This is why you fellowship together. This is why we reach out to those around us, that we might be brought to God. And this is what the Bible says, the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross, once for sins, righteous for the unrighteous, is meant to accomplish that we might be brought to God. Said one, the effect of Jesus' sacrificial death is to enable us to enter God's presence. Jesus opens the way to the throne of God introduces us to the Father and reestablishes for us an intimate relationship with the Father by removing sin as the cause of our alienation from God. Jesus provides access to God and makes us acceptable in His sight. To be brought near to God. That's what it means to be brought to God, to be brought into His presence. And the Bible says through Jesus, through that once-for-all sacrifice, well, he's, he's made a way for us to enter the most holy place. And in fact, we, we enter and we find out that it's a throne of grace. Because it's only through the blood of Jesus that anyone will enter that throne room and not be consumed or condemned. But through the blood of Jesus, through my sin being paid for at the cross, in my place, oh, I can come. And I can be brought to God joyfully and willingly and thankfully. And I might know him better. To love him more. To see his holiness and his glory, his purity, his love, his wonder, his majesty, his incomprehensibility. This is what the church is all about. This is what a preacher is called to do. To help God's people draw near to God. To be brought to God so they can see their sin more clearly and the glory of God more wonderfully. I was speaking with someone in the congregation this past week about the wonderful irony that the more and more we study God, the less and less we realize we know about Him. The more and more uh, we study God, the more clearly we see ourselves as sinners in the light of His glory. The more and more we study God, the more and more we know that He knows us better than we know ourselves. The more and more we study God, the more we know we need to learn the more and more we study God, the more and more we are amazed at His grace and mercy for us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus, friends, the Bible says, died once for all to bring us to God. So the question for you is, have you been brought to God? 
Can you enter into, into his presence? The only way you can do that, the only way we can do that is in Jesus, the righteous dying for the unrighteous. Have you been brought to God? Do you long to be near God? Or are you content to keep your distance from God? Not knowing that, realizing that Jesus has done it all at the cross so that you would be brought near. Jesus, friends, did not die on the cross so you would keep at arm's length from him. He did not die the righteous for the unrighteous that God might be a distant curiosity to you. God did not send Jesus to die once for sins that you might remain a stranger to him and a stranger to his ways and a stranger to his word and a stranger to his love and a stranger to his goodness and a stranger to his gospel and a stranger to the Savior, a stranger to the glory and wonder and mercy and beauty and power and majesty of God. But he sent Jesus that you might be brought to him to see his glory. This is the goal of a minister. This has been my goal while among you. This is the prayer of a minister. But somehow through the, the preaching of the gospel of God, through the opening of the word of God, whether it's in the morning or in the evening on the Lord's Day, Bible study on Wednesday night, Thursday night study the confession of faith, Saturday morning men's fellowship, in the homes of God's people, and as you join that minister in his home. The goal of it all, you see, is that we might be brought to God ever closer, ever near to wonder at his love, to wonder at his gift, to wonder at his son who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, a ransom for me, a ransom for you if you believe, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. May we come. May we draw near. May we in times to come under whatever minister the Lord may bring to you in his time, may we delight to draw near to him as he has drawn near to us. For Christ also suffered once for sins, righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God for his everlasting glory and for our eternal good. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit uh, who takes our, our weak uh, efforts Lord, to see uh, the glories of the Scripture, the glories of your eternal Word, to see them, that we might see you and that we might see Jesus Christ ever more clearly. And so, Lord, we pray today that we would take to heart what Peter is saying uh, to us, that Christ suffered once for sins. There's no other sacrifice. There's no other gospel that will do. The one sacrifice has been made. The price has been paid and it's been paid by the righteous one, Jesus Christ, holy and blameless and spotless, who dies in the place of sinners unrighteous like us, that we not be left in our sin, but that we might be indeed brought to God. Help us, Lord, to draw near to you as you have drawn near to us. And we pray it in Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen.